From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 258 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my guest co-host and dear friend Nancy Johnson. Nancy, how are you today? I am wonderful, Michael. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's just, it's so much fun to listen to you guys, and I've caught up on all the Pinocchios, so I am ready to go. That's great. I know you did a lot of preparation um, for this for this episode. I really appreciate it. It's why we were all such a good team on the old Disneyland show. We tried. We did. Important to try. I agree. I absolutely agree with you. So, well, today we are continuing our series of Walt Disney's animated features. In the past, we've covered the Alice comedies, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit series, the Silly Symphonies, the careers of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, and the making of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. In episodes 253 and 254, we explored the early development of Pinocchio, including several of the scenes and characters that were deleted in the process. Walt and his team went through to develop the main characters. In episode 257, we talked about the development of some of the secondary characters, including the villains. In this final installment, we are going to learn about how the soundtrack and special effects contributed to the film's storytelling and take a look at the film's release and its legacy. Nancy, do you have a favorite song from Pinocchio? Ooh, that one's tough. That one's really tough. There's so many good ones in this Oh, I know. I mean, everybody would probably say When You Wish Upon a Star because that's that's the, the hack answer. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't know. I I had one, and now I've completely forgotten it, but it's later in the movie. The songs are definitely later in the movie. Well, we'll, we'll definitely talk about the songs. So okay, and then I will say that is it. Good, perfect. Mine, okay. I think, is, uh, of course, When You Wish Upon a Star, because that's the anthem of, of the Walt Disney Company now. But... Um, I love High Diddly D. I just thought, and I think it's a combination of I like the liveliness of it, and uh, then also the um, and and then just the animation that accompanied it. Yeah, mm. I I tell you though, it's so funny. It, it really makes me think of um, Harpo Marx every time I see Gideon dance around because <laughs> it's very, it's very similar of a comedic pattern, you know, and and they're even dressed similarly. Yes. You know, they both had like the hat that's sort of top hat. They both had oversized um, waistcoats. Yep. So that's interesting. I, you know, I didn't come across 
if they, I, if they they were inspired by that. But of course, the Marx Brothers at the time were one of the top stars of the era in the 1930s. Well, you know, it's funny with when you say that about about because I when I was doing my research, I couldn't find anything either reflecting Harpo Marx. I found information on the Blue Fairy, both her her um, dance dance model as well as her song voice and speaking voice, um, but I couldn't find anything based on on that. So yeah, it's it's but it's obvious just from the look of the motion that that's who they based it on. I mean, mm-hmm. it just seems obvious. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to like put my voice in anybody's stuff. But. <laughs> so, well, let's take a look at some of the pr- more prominent songs. Yay. Um, now, Lee Harline came to the Walt Disney Studio in 1932, and he and Frank Churchill, who replaced Carl Stalling as music director, were the most prominent and talented in the studio's music department. Both men had composed some of the best scores for the Disney cartoon shorts in the 1930s. At this time, Churchill's biggest accomplishment was the song, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, from The Three Little Pigs. And Harline's biggest hit to date was The World Owes Me a Living from Grasshopper and the Ants. And I, those are both two of my favorites. Well, and you can totally see High Diddly D and how how that same musical style is brought into those Mm -hmm. pieces. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the world owes owes me a living actually sort of became Goofy's theme song. So remember in some of the Goofy shorts, he would actually sing that, you know, like the first first few words of it. How funny. I'm going to have to go back. Yeah. Now, when the studio began working on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Churchill contributed to much of the musical score with instrumental melodies and the eight songs, including Hi-Ho and With a Smile and a Song, I'm Wishing, Whistle While You Work, and Someday My Prince Will Come. When Churchill was unable to complete Snow White's score in time, Harline and other staff musicians completed the score so that it would be seamless with Churchill's style. So Harline was assigned to compose the score for Pinocchio. He was the only composer on the film, so he did not have to worry about matching his style with another composer's style. And Paul J. Smith collaborated with Harline on some cues within the score. So Harline's melodies for the film were as broad as the film itself, from the charming and sentimental opening scenes in Geppetto's workshop to the dark, threatening strings of the red lobster in exterior scene. Stromboli's marionettes in his show performed to a series of dancing and songs with an international flair, whilst the scenes at Pleasure Island are a combination of sounds going back and forth between a calliope and bluesy brass section. When Pinocchio and Jiminy begin their underwater search for Monstro, the score has a rolling rhythm similar to the currents of the sea. And Harline was the composer or co-composer for all of the scenes in the film. Now, Walt was very involved with the making of Pinocchio, and this included the music. Just as Walt had suggestions for the music, songs, and instruments used in Snow White, he had suggestions for Pinocchio, 
For example, for Stromboli's Theater Pit Orchestra, he said, get about three pieces and play there. Don't play play sorrow, but it should be like Stromboli had about three other guys there. At another conference, Walt suggested, remember, you're going to have a big orchestra all the way through the film, (laughs) and this will be a novelty in the picture. It will be refreshing. So in the end, a full score was used for Stromboli's scene with the focus on the performing marionettes. That's funny. Yeah. Talk about talk about uh, contrary uh, instructions from your boss. I know, and well, you know, every, you know, it was a process. There were so many rights and rewrites, you know, for the for the film's storyline and everything. And as we'll talk about. In, in the bit, it also meant that as the stories changed for some scenes, songs had to be rewritten to go with all of the changes. Makes sense. Yeah. But what is remembered most from the film scores are the songs. In April 1938, lyricist Ned Washington was hired to collaborate on songs for the film. He had worked on scoring several films for MGM in the 1930s and would go on to work not only for Disney, but for Paramount, Warner Brothers, and Republic Studios. Washington and Harline would compose the film songs, including the one that has become the theme song for the Walt Disney Company, When You Wish Upon a Star. Work on this song had a simple start for the scene in which Geppetto spies the wishing star and makes his wish for Pinocchio to become a real boy. The song Harline and Washington composed for the scene was based on Geppetto's Making a Wish. After completing this song in September of 1938, everyone knew this song was special. Walt's response was, quote, The star song will be through all the credit titles on the very opening. You have the introduction to start the song, then use the star song as background music for the fairy's introduction. Then at the very end, again, we don't have to stop the picture for a song like that. And yet it plants the whole atmosphere. So when the old man makes his wish, it's right in the line, unquote. Makes sense. It does. It does. I mean, well, well, was very enthusiastic about how this song could work throughout the film. (laughs) In October 1938, Cliff Edwards, the voice of Jiminy Cricket, recorded When You Wish Upon a Star. Now, the recording was filed as a test take because no one was sure how to use the song in the film nor why it would be sung by the cricket. That was until January 1939, when it was decided to have Jiminy be the narrator of the film. Jiminy would now introduce the film and speak directly to the audience. Now the song would play as the credits rolled, with Jiminy singing the song backed by the full orchestra chorus, before leading directly to his introduction of the story. An instrumental form of the melody is heard throughout the film and returns with a vocal at the end. With the release of the film, the song was immediately popular and has become the most enduring song of the film, with it being used as themes for television shows, in the Disney parks for countless shows and spectacles, for the opening of Disney films with the castle logo, the score for commercials, and it can be heard from the horns of the Disney Cruise Line ships. Geppetto's serenade to Pinocchio, Little Woodenhead, was one of the first songs written for the film. 
1937 stage production, Geppetto sings a lullaby to Pinocchio, which includes the words, Little Wooden Head. In early story conferences, there was suggestion to have a scene in which Pinocchio is teased by boys who taunt him by saying, Wooden Head, Wooden Head. After the song was heard, there was thought to having Geppetto sing the song as he paints Pinocchio. And Little Woodenhead was now a term of endearment from Geppetto to Pinocchio, and the melody can be heard in several scenes. Give a little... Oh. Oh no! Um, no, I was—I was just thinking. I'd never heard the phrase used in the film. You know, you'd think if he was that into the phrase or the song, they might have actually used the the phrase as a term of endearment in the movie. But yeah, it's only the melody. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think he does call him his his little wooden head in the film, or maybe in the song itself. Now, Give a Little Whistle was created to be a second vocal number for Cliff Edwards and to help advance the relationship between the puppet and his newly appointed conscience. Both a verse and a chorus was written for the song, but we primarily hear the chorus in the film. Edwards recorded several versions of the song, but only the verse teaching Pinocchio how to whistle was kept for the film. This is another one of my favorite songs. I really I do I, I like that song. Film. It's a nice scene too in the film. It reminds me how much I can't whistle because you know, <laughs> you you can't listen to that song without trying to whistle. Mm-hmm. Just like and that, yeah. it's just sort of yeah <laughs> yeah. Although lyrics were written for "Turn on the old music box," all we hear is the instrumental when Geppetto starts up all the music boxes in his workshop. The tune can also be heard when Geppetto is heading off to school and after his escape from Stromboli. It is heard a final time when Geppetto celebrates Pinocchio becoming a real boy. You know, that's actually, you know, when you talk about your favorite song, I wouldn't even have known that that was a song unless you had, like, listed all all of these score titles. Because... That's actually one of my favorite scenes when all of the clocks, because frankly, I think char- the clocks are very much characters in the film. Oh, absolutely. And especially because, you know, Jiminy even interacts with some of mm-hmm. the clocks. And I, I love this melody. And it was promoted in the promotional materials as a song for the film. But the melody, I just like how it's so light and lyrical and joyful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, High Diddly D was written for the Fox with the goal of impressing Pinocchio about the life of being an actor. A rough lyric was written early on by T. He and was titled, Oh, for the Life of an Actor. Walt liked the tempo and the idea of the song, and when Harline and Washington came on board, Walt tasked them with reworking the lyrics without losing any of its essential qualities. Only a few days later, they had Walter Catlett, the voice of the fox, record their new version of the song, now titled High Diddly Dee. And Walt was delighted with this version of the song. He loves funky names. (laughs) (laughs) There are all of the movies, you know, there's like Booty Bobbity Boo and this and that. It's kind of one of those things. That's true. That's true. 
<laughs> From the very beginning, it was decided that Pinocchio would work in a marionette show, as in Collodi's book. The details of the sequence were worked, reworked, and reworked again as the film's development progressed. The song I've Got No Strings had to be changed continuously by Hartline in Washington as the scene's storyline and imagery changed. Walt liked the song, even when he was unhappy with other aspects of the puppet theater sequence. And that's because the scene had become elaborate and full of gags. When Walt finally suggested it be simplified, was most of the gags cut. But of the song, he said, that would be just the song, practically. And we know we can't go wrong with a cute song and this little cute character putting it over. I one of the things I love about the song is how they translated through all the chaos of the performance in the very end. You know, he he, it's like the puppet just comes up with the fact that he's got to like throw out the punchline, mm-hmm. so to speak, by by you know ending with the big boom of an actor's life for me, or you know I've got no strings on me. Mm-hmm. Also, what's cool about the song is the way Harline and Washington uh, worked it is that they it you know as all the different marionettes from the different countries came out the the song was reworked with like instruments that we associate with those countries that's cool so so it was very cleverly worked this the way they 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 had the instrumentals for I've got no strings so and again, it, it's a very happy, cheerful song. Just before it, the darkness <laughs> sets ugh, in, into the film, Lordy. Now, during the creation of the score and songs, a new instrument was introduced by the Hammond Organ Company to the musical world: the Novacord, which produced sounds electronically, and it was the forerunner to electric synthesizers. So by May 1939, Harline had a Novacord installed in one of the Disney Studio sound stages. So Harline used it as he composed the score and songs, and he tried out new musical ideas before finalizing them without the expense of hiring a full orchestra. He also experimented with the Novacord in combination with an organ, celesta, and bells to create the music and sound effects for the Blue Fairies' entrances and exits. During the creation of Pinocchio, the artist made several innovations to advance the art of character animation. There was also an unusually large special effects team that created the water ripples and movements, flickering flames that seemed to dance, splashing raindrops, lightning flashes, and looming shadows. Former special effects supervisor Robert Marsh was assigned as special effects supervisor in November 1938 to coordinate the technologies used to create the special effects. Many special effect techniques that had been used in Snow White, and Walt wanted to advance these for Pinocchio. Well, understandably, when you talk about shadows and how the shadows were utilized, one of the cool things about Pinocchio was the fact that if you look at it and really closely look at it in the um, in the full body scenes, there really are many shadows, mm-hmm. but on all the close up scenes. 
everything has a shadow and the shadows move in relation to the light as you would normally ex- mm-hmm. expect them. So if the light's shining above from the right, the shadows are all going to be to the left of the object. And Pinocchio's motions are, are perfectly mirrored in the, in as well as the motion of like the little figures on the clocks and everything are perfectly mirrored mm-hmm. in the shadows. So they really, you can see how much of a difference it is from Snow White and including the bubbles and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. One of the neatest effects I thought was when it was in the scene when Pinocchio comes to life and he, Geppetto is dancing, you know, in his nightgown with, uh, and, you know, his uh, sleep. Oh yeah. The, the and- special scene, in the see in the dark. <laughs> Yeah, when he passes in front of a candle and you see the shadow of his body through the fabric. I thought that I thought that was just I don't know why I thought that was a spectacular effect. Well, I truly understand that. I was that made me just laugh. It's like, oh to think of what people would say now. Oh, the harm of the children. Oh, Never be at the smoking. Cover their eyes. Cover their eyes. But it, it just made the fabric seem that much more real. You know? Yes. So. Very much so. And you figure a person of his station, you know, with not that much money might very well have a nightshirt that's on the thin side because it wouldn't be a priority for money spent. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Now, for Snow White, Walt and the paint department wanted to add a reddish glow to Snow White's cheeks without a hard outline, so it wouldn't look like clown makeup. The solution was to apply red dye lightly on the front of the cell, which would then be absorbed by the celluloid and appear to blend in with Snow White's natural skin color. All other paints on the cell were applied on the back. And everyone was so pleased with this effect, they wanted to see how this blending technique could be advanced for Pinocchio. So Mary Louise Weiser from the Ink and Paint Department suggested the studio develop its own paints rather than relying on commercially manufactured paints. Smart. She then worked on enhancing blended color effects applied directly to cells, and her technique became known as the blend. And the... Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, no, no, I, I was more thinking to myself, but I used to work for a paint company in college. It was part of my, you know, in my internship. And I understand the whole need to get that color just right because people who work with paint and color very specifically need that color to match. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, then this allowed them to um, blend their own custom colors and which of course if you've ever been on the tour of the walt disney studio they t- they walk you by what's left of the ink and paint department and you can see some of those colors in there as you look yeah. through the glass of the door and at the walt disney family museum they have a display of of the of the colors used in one of the films they have them all there and it's a remarkable number of colors. It must be a hundred. At Dis- at California Venture, don't they have that in the store that sells the home goods and mugs on Buena Vista, on Buena Vista Street? They might. Yeah, because they, the whole backdrop was because it was the ink and paint shop, wasn't it? Or it was somebody's drawing studio or something. I think you're right. It I think it was like an art studio or something, a f- photography studio. I'm not. I don't recall which. 
Now, the blend was simply a pencil or crayon of a particular waxy consistency. When it was applied to a painted cell, it added a neutral density to large, flat areas of color, giving it an appearance of shading and sense of depth. When it was used between two areas of different colors, it would smooth over the dividing line and provide a subtle transition from one color to another, which is how the technique came to be called the blend. Walt liked this effect, but he cautioned that it should be used in moderation and primarily on faces that sort of round them out when needed. So this blend gave Jiminy Cricket a subtle coloration and caused Pinocchio's cheeks to glow like painted, polished pine. That's neat. It is. Yeah. Existing special effects were also used. Dry brush and other techniques were applied to add texture to Geppetto's hair and Figaro's fur. Airbrush artists created moonbeams, dust, and smoke. Twinkling stars were created by using controlled voltage electric lights inserted into the night sky scenes. Ground distortion glasses were inserted behind the camera lens, then drawn across the field frame by frame to create the rippling effect to the underwater scenes. That's cool. I would have never thought that they would have used, you know, light distortion techniques. Yeah, because, I mean, th- that's that whole underwater scene is just remarkable. You know, uh, uh, all the effects. It really is. And it's... um. It just makes it so believable, even though it's animated. Yeah. Now, for the above water scenes, a new difficult laborious process was devised. Ink cells of the waves were not painted in the standard process. Instead, they were fastened to sheets of blue paper, and each sheet was cut to conform to the waves on that particular cell. The blue paper waves were then given depth and form by shading with a mixture of blue and black mechanical pencil leads ground to a fine dust and applied to the paper. This process is repeated for each cell, with each drawing taking hours to complete. The buildings at the Hyperion studio were not air-conditioned, so just one drop of perspiration could ruin a cell. Isn't that remarkable? Would you? Wouldn't that just make you perspire more if you were a stress, a stress sweater? I mean, really. Already <laughs> wore headbands and turbans and things. Like well, that. I was thinking of that one. I yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The interesting thing is, have you ever seen? Uh, because this used this. Headscarves were popular in the 40s because, you know, you've got Rosie the Riveter and her tied up headscarf. So, yeah, could very well be. There was a film that was released around this time by the Max Fleischer Studios. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's Gulliver's Travels. I have. It used to, when I was a boy, it used to be one of those films they showed on television every, like, Christmas holiday season. Understood. But that was rotoscoped, which so it, it and which the Disney Studio would not do. Um, yeah, and and of course, rotoscope is when you film it and then you just trace you trace the film with animation. And the interesting thing is there there were water scenes because of course you know Gulliver gets you know his yeah. ship wrecks and crashes up on on the shore um, of Lilliput. Um, but the water effects in that, which were all rotoscoped, 
are less believable than the water scenes in Pinocchio that which were not really they didn't try for them to be realistic but through these wonderful effects the the water scenes are just so much better and so much more impressive yep so one of the film's challenges was capturing the movement of inanimate objects like the birdcage imprisoning Pinocchio and Stromboli's caravan wagons to make them look solid and rigid. So animators struggled because when these objects began to move, they quivered like jelly when they with the animation. So the solution was to How does how does that happen? That it quivers, you know, the, the phrase quivering like jelly. I mean, if you're drawing straight lines and you're repeatedly drawing straight lines in your things, how do, from one cell to another, how does it not remain straight? Yes, because it just wasn't perfect. Like, that was one of the flaws that drove Walt crazy at the end of Snow White because the, it, the, um, the prince, as they're, they're going off to the castle in the sunset, mm-hmm. the prince shimmies just a little. And really? Walt, Walt wanted to change that and fix it until, he, until Roy told him how much it would cost. And then Walt said, forget it. It was later fixed. Okay. When, when it was a little less expensive to do. Which is why I didn't notice it when I watched it yesterday, because I was, I was trying to go back and look at the, the, te- the special effects techniques used on Snow White to compare yeah. them to the techniques used here. Yeah, and so I think they were getting that sort of shimmying effect with these solid objects. So the solution was to build actual models of these items and photograph them. And the cage model was 14 inches high, And since Pinocchio was inside the birdcage, the animators drew the cage on two different cells, the back of the cage on one cell and the front on another. Then they drew Pinocchio between them, which resolved the issue of having to draw Pinocchio within the bars of the cage. That makes perfect sense, especially with the use of multiple cameras and layering. Um, Okay, question. Mm -hmm. We were arguing about this yesterday. Is there a per, a bird perch in Pinocchio's cage? Yeah, because he sits on it. Okay, because I couldn't visualize the bird perch and didn't really notice it was there until he falls off. And I'm like, where the heck is he falling off to? Because, you know, he's falling backwards and it almost looks in the animation part like he's falling onto the floor. Yeah. Out of the cage. Yeah, but he he's used the perch as a swing. Okay. That on it. Okay. I'm because the other replicas of the movies are the other versions. I should say the Tom Hanks version, the Guillermo del Toro version. Neither one of them has a swing in the bird cage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was a nice touch. It was very clever. Um, now, the cage model was constructed to break away so the front and back sections could be filmed, and then the frames of these films were reproduced on photoshops. <sighs> now, normally, Disney artists were against tracing, but Bob McCrae traced the cage directly from the photostats, and the result was a bird cage containing Pinocchio that appeared rigid when swinging back and forth. Yay. 
Now, in the previous ep- in a previous episode, we talked about how the miniature models of Stromboli's wagons were constructed and filmed in 35 millimeter against the neutral background, rolling along the road in the film. These frames were then blown up as relief cells and painted in the usual manner and used in the film. And Nancy, you already brought up one of the best known innovations that was used in Snow White, which was the multiplane camera crane. Yep. Which allowed artists to move the camera between widely separated planes of animation and background elements. And this would create a sense of depth. And this was first used in the old mill, the Disney short, because they would use shorts sort of as their their proving grounds for, you know, for effects that they would do in the feature films. So Walt wanted to further develop this effect for Pinocchio and first suggested it be used for the underwater scenes. It would end up being used throughout the film. For example, when the boys enter Pleasure Island, nine separate multiplane levels were used. Jeez, it doesn't look like it's that many, but... Because there's different effects, you know, as you go along with clouds moving and the moon and and the glow of the lights from, uh, you know, from Pleasure Island, since they are in darkness. Well, how many, how many, do you know how many were used in that opening sequence where it pans over from uh, the, um, the doves all the way through the village and the homes? Yeah, I don't know. We, we are going to talk about my favorite sequence in the film. Okay. was created. Woohoo. But when we, when we see Honest John, Gideon, and the coachman discussing their evil plans at the Red Lobster Inn, 11 multi-plane levels were used for the various effects. For instance, the cigar smoke. That was one. Yeah. Plane. So there are all, that's why you have so many of these levels for each little effect. So it would create the depth, you know, almost yep. a 3D effect in a way, rather than being flat. And the whole dem- Mary Jo is so right on how the coachman is just the one of the creepiest things. But you know, we won't even talk about the whole you know child abduction and kidnapping and <laughs> and human trafficking and you know they're worried about smoking and human trafficking is a real deal in this show. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> That's what makes it so frightening. That film, yeah. that scene sequence in the film. One of the most breathtaking and complex scenes, and this is one of my favorites, it's the opening shot of sequence two, which takes place the morning after Pinocchio comes to life. And even the multi-plane camera was unable to capture it. So you might recall the scene opens with the ringing of the bells and a rooftop Mm -hmm. scene. Then the camera moves across the rooftops, down into the street, veering off at an angle, around a corner, under an arch, before coming to Geppetto's cottage door. This is one of the greatest technical achievements in the film, and it lasts a mere 45 seconds. The winding path in this sequence exceeded the limits of the multiplane camera crane. So the multiplane levels were filmed horizontally and laid out on a track similar to a dolly shot in a live action film. Each level was painted in oil on glass, like the typical multiplane camera process, but each plane was much larger and required special wooden frames to hold them in place. 
Layout artist Thor Putnam, his team and technicians broke down the scene into six sections, then plotted each scene in detail. Then there was the character animation in this sequence that had to be added, including the birds fluttering around the bells and villagers starting their day. For each of these sections, standard camera platens were placed at predetermined positions along the track, clamping the animation cells tight to hold them in place in front of the scenery. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's astonishing, just amazing. You know, I honestly didn't realize that they used oil-based paints. I always thought they were some kind of water-based or acrylic to get those colors. So, yeah, not that they had true acrylic paints back then, but yeah. and in some in some films they did use watercolor. Bambi, they used watercolor yeah. extensively, and that even in Snow White, some of the backgrounds. But before attempting to film the sequence, they filmed a dry run in black and white using pencil drawings in April 1939. And after verifying the illusion could be successfully completed, they moved forward with full color production. The planning, testing, and completion of this one scene took months and was filmed in Technicolor in late October and early November of 1939. This one scene that appears to be one continuously moving scene is still considered to be a major achievement in animation. These 45 seconds in the film cost $45,000 to produce. Not surprised. Yeah, I wonder what that is in today's money. I looked it up. It was cl- it's close to two million dollars. Not surprised. Isn't that crazy. So yeah. Under the direction of Jimmy McDonald, the sound effects are so natural and subtle that they often go unnoticed. In our previous installment, we talked about how some of the sound effects for Monstro were created. And when Jiminy Cricket attempts to hide in Pinocchio's birdcage and comes up with a hat full of birdseed, the sound effects team experimented with Mexican peas, coffee beans, and uncooked rice before finding the right combination for sounds of the seeds. When Pinocchio tears up after smoking a cigar, the sound is created using bubbles blown through a straw into a Coke bottle partly filled with water. Because the Coke would have been more viscous. Mm-hmm. That totally explains it. Foley artists, to me, are still some of the most amazing people with the most amazing jobs in this industry. They really are. It oh, makes me sad they took away the sound studio. Yeah, yeah, because they can make or break, you know, a film. If, mm-hmm. if, if the sound is not believable. And, yep. and, you know, really the sound is, is part of the storytelling. In it because it you know one of the reasons Monstro seems so powerful and scary is really because of the sound effects that that you hear when Monstro is you know ch- chugging through the water you know chasing you know our our uh, yeah Geppetto and Pinocchio and Jiminy and and everyone so it was um yeah you're right they they're sort of unsung heroes in a lot of ways in making a film. When Pinocchio and Jiminy go under the sea, it was decided they would use their normal voices and have the ability to breathe. But how would they sound? The first experiment was to have Walter Tetley and later Dickie Jones record their lines with mouths full of water. But as you can imagine, this didn't quite work out. 
Yeah, it sounds like me talking normally. They have drowned trying that. This problem was resolved during an October 1938 recording session using a butterfly machine. What the heck is... You can explain what that is, yeah. (laughs) This was a standard optical sound recorder in which the fade, which is the area through which the film passes to expose the sound on the track area, was loosened. So as Walt described it, they loosened the gate until the film was very jittery and it was very watery. And this ended up being a very simple solution to the problem. Who knew that film speed had a relation to to you know jitter mm-hmm. i yeah. mean it it you, know, you don't think about these things when you watch a movie and from what i read this could have been sometimes this was an unintentional problem when when the um fate wasn't you know set up properly so um so sometimes that's that's uh, used to be a problem they would have to correct in a, in a film, but they use this to be a solution to the film. That's cool. And provide very believable, you know, underwater effect. I always, there are two things about this film that I've always wondered. A, how they can believe that we can disbelieve, you know, we can put aside our belief that Jiminy Cricket can survive in this environment. And then, Number two, how the heck does Cleo's bowl not lose any of its fresh water? By God, she's a goldfish for sake. I know, especially <laughs> when they get when when Monstro attacks the raft. I've thought of that too. And why doesn't she spill out? But her bowl just washes up on shore. You know, with yeah. The, with the yeah. For a while there, it's like okay, there's Pinocchio rescuing Geppetto. Blah blah blah, and. Okay, where are Jiminy and Cleo, or Figaro and Cleo, rather? Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, where are they? Then all of a sudden, there they go. Mm-hmm. La, 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 float away. Really? Well, of course, at the end, I think I brought this up in one of the other episodes. How does a, a puppet die in water? So, you know, that's, yeah. you just have to sort of uh, let go of all that. Guillermo del Toro actually had a really interesting um, resolution to that. Mm-hmm. So um, his his thought was that basically every time um, every time Pinocchio died, because of the way he was created, every time he died, he would go back. You know, basically Pinocchio was immortal until the very last time. Wait, and he decided he was going to break the rule. He had to wait so much time in in the underworld before he could go back up. Mm-hmm. And it's reborn almost every time. And and so as a result his guardian in the underworld the sister who created him you know life has to have a death balance component in Mm -hmm. figurines so you know you've got the blue fairy and then you've got a death fairy basically um if he did if he broke the rule and didn't stay with her the appropriate amount of time he would lose his immortality Mm mm-hmm and so he broke the rule and broke the hourglass and and went to save Geppetto instead. So that's how he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that's kind of interesting. It is. It is interesting. That was a wonderful film. Very different from the Disney version. Mm-hmm. It was really, really worth seeing. I enjoyed that tremendously. I don't know why I put off watching it for so long. I kept thinking, oh, it's just going to be another thing. And it's like, I should know better that Guillermo del Toro doesn't produce crap. Oh, I know. <laughs> and it was interesting how he used an entire Mexican, and he used Mexican animators and Mexican studios because apparently they have some of the best animators these days, oh. at least in the, in the stop motion field. Oh, that's interesting. Well, they they created a spectacular film. It was beautiful. Now, as Walt Disney's film production continued, Roy Disney negotiated the film's distribution contract since they relied on other studios to distribute films at this time. Now, RKO had taken over distribution of the Disney cartoon shorts in 1937, and they had distributed Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But this was no guarantee they would distribute all their feature-length animated cartoons, since each was handled as a separate contract. Offers came in from Metro, United Artists, Warner Brothers, Paramount, and RKO. Roy deferred making a choice till the returns from Snow White were in. Roy continued to negotiate, and by mid-June 1939, he and Walt decided to award the distribution contract to RKO. At the same time, Herman K. Kamen was spearheading the merchandising of the film. Kamen signed contracts with 56 manufacturers to license Pinocchio products, including books, jewelry, figurines, dishes and tableware, party favors, wooden toys, music, clothes for both adults and children, games, framed pictures, dolls, banks, pencils, masquerade costumes, hair ornaments, chewing gum and candy, records, Valentine cards and gasoline oil umbrellas and raincoats. You know, and to think that people criticize that there's too much merchandising today, or the merchandising has gone into all kinds of uh, kinds of unknown opportunities. It's like, okay, take a look at that. That's a bit of a variety. Yeah, Kay Kamen was masterful at handling all of the Disney merchandising. So, and that brought in quite a bit of revenue back to the mm-hmm. studio. Yes. In the 1930s, radio was also a powerful merchandising tool. After negotiations with the NBC radio network to broadcast an hour-long version of Pinocchio failed, an agreement was reached with the Lux Radio Theater program on CBS to air a one-hour Pinocchio show on Christmas Day, 1939. Cecil B. DeMille was the producer and host of the show, and most of the film's voice cast was repeated their performances for the broadcast. <laughs> you don't throw Cecil B. DeMille around casually, so no. that's actually really cool and that he was doing radio producing. Yeah, I know, and it was quality because when I was a boy, they would rebroadcast these old-time radio shows on um, KSFO radio in San Francisco. And so I got to hear a lot of these. And Lux Radio Theater was a very high quality program and really enjoyable. So, and um, I think now there's a series, I now, I still listen to these old shows on, on Sirius Radio. They have a, a classic radio show channel 
Now, originally, Pinocchio was planned to be released during the 1939 Christmas season. However, due to the complicated technical processes, the recording of the lavish film score and Walt's perfectionism delayed the film's release till two previews were held in January 1940. And afterwards, a series of corrections had to be made to the film, which included correcting some technical imperfections and cell wrinkles, adding missing polka dots on the fox's handkerchief, oh, geez. and correcting the color of the cricket's vest in one scene. The most significant change was the complete reanimation of Pinocchio's reawakening as a real boy at the end of the film. Walt was dissatisfied with the character's original design by Frank Thomas and assigned Milt Call to redesign the real-life Pinocchio. Boy, you can't have a thin skin in that business. <laughs> no, oh no, absolutely. You could not. Because Walt could be very critical. And according to Frank Thomas, Walt didn't like some of the proportions of the okay. uh, life Pinocchio. They felt the arms were too long. The torso wasn't right. He didn't like how the legs were and all that. So that's that, those are some of the things that he was um, unhappy with. Understandable. Yeah. So the world premiere of Pinocchio was finally scheduled for February 7th, 1940 in New York's Music Hall Theater, which had been built in 1932 as part of Rockefeller Center. Snow White had a spectacular release at Radio City Music Hall, and Walt and Roy wanted a similar release for Pinocchio with a 10-week run. Disney and RKO could not negotiate this deal with the Music Hall Theater, so it was booked into Rockefeller Center's other theater, the Center Theater. As a result of the merchandise and media promotions, the public's anticipation for Pinocchio was high. A week before the premiere, the Rockefeller Center skating rink staged a Pinocchio ice skating carnival. 900 store windows in New York featured Pinocchio displays. Can can you imagine that now? Or- oh, I know. The fact they've even taken characters away from the Disney stores, what few tiny, if there are any left, I don't think there are. But uh, yeah, go figure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and all, well, all of that was, you know, due to Kay Kamen. He would, he, they contracted very elaborate window displays. Did he did he by any chance work for Macy's beforehand? Because <laughs> you know, frankly, that was a time when department store displays were the thing and the challenge. I remember everyone went to go see the you know window displays during the holiday season. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That, that was true in San Francisco, and you knew which stores would have Christmas displays, and then which one focused on Easter. Displays. Yeah that so um so it was always a treat those are the days when you got dressed up to go downtown now now most of the shops in downtown san francisco are gone closed up it's a shame it is it is a shame because that was part of the magic of being a child really during the holidays was seeing those elaborate store windows well opening night festivities included a themed costume party at the rainbow room after the screening the premiere was a huge success, with more than 3,500 guests attending the screening. The audience broke out in applause at least 10 times during the film. 
The success was repeated two nights later in Hollywood when the film premiered at the Pantages and Hill Street Theatres. Which the Pantages is still live and active and basically our Broadway. <laughs> yeah, didn't they restore it recently? Yeah, they uh, did. And it's gorgeous. I'm surprised Mary Jo didn't have things to say about that because she goes there a lot. Yeah. Well, we didn't talk about the opening back then. Well, that's true. She was on. So critics reviews raved about the film, stating it surpassed Snow White technically and in its storytelling. Tributes were sent to Walt from within and outside the film industry. Frank S. Nugent of the New York Times gave the film five out of five stars, saying Pinocchio is here at last, is every bit as fine as we prayed it would be, if not finer. And if that is as gay and clever and delightful a fantasy as any well-behaved youngster or jaded oldster could hope to see. Time Magazine gave the film a positive review, stating, In craftsmanship and delicacy of drawing and color, in the articulation of its dozens of characters, in the greater variety and depth of its photographic effects, it tops high-standard Snow White set. The charm, humor, and loving care with which it treats its inanimate characters puts it in a class by itself. I have to go back to that little comment about the delightful fantasies any well-behaved youngster or jaded <laughs> oldster. Because what what about the not well-behaved youngsters? Oh, oh, that's right. They were human trafficked and turned into donkeys. Right, hopefully they learned the lesson. <laughs> Jeez. Variety praised the animation is superior to Snow White's writing the animation is so smooth that cartoon figures carry impressions of real persons and settings rather than drawings to onlooker. In summary, they felt Pinocchio will stand on its own as a substantial piece of entertainment for young and old, providing attention to its perfection in animation and photographic effects. The Hollywood Reporter wrote, Pinocchio is entertainment for everyone of every age, so completely charming and delightful that there is profound regret when it reaches the final fade out. Since comparisons will be inevitable, it may as well be said at once that from a technical standpoint, conception and production, this picture is infinitely superior to Snow White. So you... you um, Nancy, you had said you'd watch Snow White and compare yes. with Pinocchio. So what are your thoughts on these comments or your observations? There's definitely, definitely more of a depth, visual depth to this film. Um, Snow White, you know, was, was very flat in some scenes, especially like, you know, the animals and the, the cottage and all those types of scenes. Um, I felt like this had more, I don't want to use the word depth again too much, too readily, but, you know, it's like when you ride the ride and you're going through um, Pleasure Island and all of a sudden it's, you know, large Ferris wheel, large this, and then the, it really felt a little more like you were going through it as a ride through versus... Yeah, it, it, you can understand why Walt translated it into a dark ride at the park mm -hmm. because of how it fits. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that is one of Tony Baxter's favorite films. And so I think that's why he um, created that dark ride, which is one of my favorites at Disneyland. Shane, the Florida folks can't can't have that much fun. Oh, uh, well, no. yeah, they, have, they have four theme parks to go to. We only have two, so. I know. But the cuckoo clocks, man, the cuckoo clocks are everything about it. Even the depth. Okay. I got to say, when you look at the animation of the cuckoo clocks, even the mechanical figures all have the correctly animated posts. You know, the little levers will make them do whatever they're supposed to do. Even the mom spanking the kid on the butt. That was funny. Yeah, yeah, I tell you, right. no, and, and you know, a lot of places just draw the little bird bending over, or you know, the wood chopper just chopping, but don't have any mechanism to them. Mm-hmm. And all of them have mechanism. Right, you believe these these are real, and when you go on the snow, the uh, Pinocchio attraction at Disneyland, they have a wall of those clocks when you go into Geppetto's <laughs> workshop, which I is know. my favorite scene. It, it's, it's the exit, but um, it's one of the exit scenes. But I wish you could stay in there longer. I actually got I actually got stuck with the ride stop in there once. I did too, and we had to walk out. They had to escort <gasps> us out. I was very slow walking through Geppetto's workshop so that I could see all the details. I took lots of pictures. It's also amazing when the lights go on, how much junk there is just lying around. <laughs> we don't see in the dark. There's boxes and cables and all kinds of things. There was a chair, which I don't know who was sitting there, but um, all kinds of things. It's really amazing what what there is when the lights go on in these attractions. But merchandise continued to roll out for children and adults, and the film songs were heard with increasing frequency over every radio station. When You Wish Upon a Star was beginning to take on a life of its own, with many performers and bands recording their own versions. However, some of the euphoria was dampened with the New York run at the Center Theater. The Music Hall Theater had 6,000 seats, but the Center Theater had only 3,400. This reduced capacity, and a heavy winter took its toll on attendance and box office returns. Pinocchio, nobody wants, yeah, nobody wants to go out in the weather now. Yeah. <laughs> Pinocchio would run for only eight weeks, and its box office totals were less than Snow White's five-week run at Radio City Music Hall. Oh, yeah, that's, and not as much people, not as much money. Yeah, that's right. And as Pinocchio opened in wide release, the same pattern took place with an exuberant film opening than lackluster attendance afterwards. Pinocchio's ticket sales would have been fine for an ordinary film, but given the high production quality and expense, Walt and Roy expected ticket sales to surpass Snow White's. As part of the film's distribution contract, Roy had stipulated that the film could not be shown as a double bill, which was all the rage in theaters at the time. Given the tepid ticket sales, Roy conceded this point with the hope it would bring in more revenue, and Pinocchio was billed with second-rate or B films, which cheapened the film in the public size. Uh, it, how? I mean, 
I I guess I don't really understand all that because you know theoretically the double bills were because the because of wartime and you know the the you know growing lack of disposable income from families who were you know struggling all throughout the wartime. Yeah. So why would that why would that downgrade the quality of what they're seeing? I think because it became associated as a second rate film. <sighs> because it was and it was I, I'd seen in my research I saw some of the films that it was billed with. They're not memorable films in, in any okay. way. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, when Snow White was released overseas, the studio had an ambitious dubbing program for international audiences. However, the world had changed since Snow White's release, with the European continent being embroiled in war. English-speaking allied countries would see the film, but releasing it to other countries in Europe proved to be impossible. Jeez. The disappointing response to Pinocchio was a hard lesson for Walt and Roy. The film's negative cost was $1 million more than Snow White, and they expected revenue that would justify the expense. By the end of the year, Pinocchio failed to break even. Walt would tell a reporter that the film lacked an intel- intangible something. Walt continued to work on Fantasia and Bambi with enthusiasm, but said, We shall never again sink all our hopes into a single picture. It doesn't pay. The film was nominated and won two Academy Awards in 1941 for Best Original Score and Best Original Song for When You Wish Upon a Star. This was the first Disney film to win either category and was the studio's first animated feature-length film to win competitive Oscars. Pinocchio was re-released domestically in 1945, and thanks to the end of the war in Europe, it was finally released to the war-torn nations, hungry for an escape from their new post-war reality. The film now made a profit, and was re-released in 1954. It would be re-released another five times before entering the home video market. In 1956, Walt reflected, well... Time had to play its part. Pinocchio has become a perennial. I remember seeing the last re-release of Pinocchio. I went with a, I was a teacher. I went with another teacher friend, and because it was, it had already been announced, Pinocchio was going to be one of the first films to be released on VHS. So. Why am I not surprised? Number two being, you know, the second film being Pinocchio, first one being Snow White. It makes it made sense in the order they released him, but thus begins the vault. Yeah. Well, Snow White <laughs> yeah. didn't go to video. It was one of the last of the major films. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry. Alice, I had in, a Wonderland. Moment. Alice in Wonderland was, I think, the first to go to home video of the feature-length animated <gasps> film. Interestingly enough, did you see how many Alice in Wonderland references there are in Pinocchio? Well, definitely you see references to um, when they're, is it in the workshop? There's books there? Yeah. There are books for two future mm. Disney films in there. Yeah, yep. Uh, there's one. the book and then one of the pieces on the uh, shelf that Jiminy turns around and talks to. Oh, when when Pinocchio is being named, he turns around and talks to the Queen of Hearts. Yeah, so 
even even though those might and those were films that were um being considered and discussed at that time so figaro and jiminy cricket would reappear in other disney films and television shows figaro who is walt's favorite character would become Minnie Mouse's kitten in several short cartoons, but Jiminy Cricket would become even more prominent. Jiminy became the face of the Walt Disney Studio alongside Tinkerbell. Jiminy Cricket returned in 1947's Fun and Fancy Free. Acting as the host, Jiminy introduces two cartoon shorts, Bongo and Mickey and the Beanstalk, and even gets to sing a little song as well. There was even a cameo by Cleo the Goldfish in that film. He often hosted segments on Walt Disney's anthology series. He was the host of Walt Disney's educational series called I'm No Fool. No fool, no siree. I'm going to live to be 103. I love Don't tell you and me. I'm no fool. Yeah, Sorry. <laughs> those, those, and that, those are some, that should be something that's on Disney+. Plus. But Oh, well. Mm-hmm. He was in the Mickey Mouse Club, Mickey's Christmas Carol, Mickey's Magical World, and House of Mouse, and has appeared in numerous Disney theme park productions. The importance of Jiminy Cricket to the company's name has remained critical. Jiminy's song, When You Wish Upon a Star, is widely considered to be the theme song for the Walt Disney Company and is ranked seventh on the American Film Institute's list of 100 Greatest Songs in Film History. And don't forget that he was actually the the character representative of the, the environmentality movement. That's very true. That's that's very true. He was in those films. Well, no, I mean the little buttons they would environmentality buttons they would hand out at the parks. He was always on those, and in the little flyers about how to make your you know your visit more environmental leading up to the, you know, non-removal of towels and the. Yeah, they, oh, they would have even little signs and posters with him. Yeah. Yeah. An attraction based on Pinogu, as we already mentioned, can be experienced in the fantasy lands of Disneyland in California and Disneyland Paris. How's Paris different from ours? It's really not. Or is it? It's pretty much the same. Because oh, okay. uh, Baxter, dis, you know, designed and built both. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you, know, you don't you don't mess with a good thing. No, absolutely. Most of the elements and techniques Walt Disney used in Pinocchio weren't completely new. Disney regularly used its short films as testing grounds for things like the multiplane camera, but they were untested at Pinocchio's level. And that represents perhaps the film's greatest achievement, unprecedented artistic ambition. Pinocchio was a calculated risk that established Disney feature animation as an artistic force as well as a commercial one. Snow White set the records, but Pinocchio set the standard. Woo! And that brings us to a close of our series on um, Pinocchio. And I hope that now when you go back and revisit the film or go ride the attraction at one of the Disney parks, you'll have a, a greater appreciation for the artistry and technicality and everything that went into this film. So, But now it's time for this week in Disney history. All right. Okay. 
talk about this before the show. You want me to go first? Yes, I do. And and mine actually is tied in to, to Pinocchio. So June 14th, 1895, Cliff Edwards, who was the voice of both Jimmy Cricket and Jim Crow in Dumbo, was born in Hannibal, Missouri on this date, June 14th, 1895. Although there aren't any official records of his birth. So some historians are wondering if the date and place might be correct or not. Now, Cliff Edwards, you might recall, is also known as Ukulele Ike, and he enjoyed considerable popularity in the 1920s and early 1930s. He specialized <coughs> Sorry. Okay. He specialized in jazzy renditions of pop standards and novelty tunes. And in the 1950s and early 1960s, Edwards made a number of appearances on the Mickey Mouse Club. And not only did he reprise his Jiminy Cricket voice for various Disney shorts and, and the Christmas special, remember, From All of Us to All of You, which is has was always one of my favorite Christmas specials. And it's still showing in the Netherlands. And they update it every year. So um, Cliff Edwards was named a Disney legend in 2000, and it was definitely well-deserved. So so what do you have for us, Nancy? Well, I was really trying to, trying to decide. There were so many. I picked June 10th. I don't know why I picked June 10th, but since you didn't tell me what day you picked, I figured I'd yeah, go yeah, say um let's see um well um interestingly enough who do i want i want girl power for this one so um somebody you know we we don't talk a lot about things you know with this, I guess, comes kind of concurrent with the closing of Splash Mountain and, you know, the the situational film, which actually had some pretty good music for the most part, um, although questionable, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, actress Hattie McDonald, who played Aunt Tempe in Disney's Song of the South, and she was actually the first person of African descent to be nominated and win an Academy Award. She's born on, uh, in Wichita, Kansas on June 10th. So that was kind of fun. Um, movie fans will actually recognize her for her Oscar winning role in Gone with the Wind. Absolutely. Yeah. And she was just, she had the most amazing voice. She really did. She did. And she was just a terrific actress. She was, I saw, she's, I saw her in other films, including Song of the South. And she was just, terrific and and from what i've read about her she seemed to be a very gracious person and, oh and that's 1985 too she or 1895 i'm sorry that she was born i forgot to mention the year but that you know when we consider same, someone it's the same age as cliff edwards well there we go there we go yeah but um yeah, because Jim, Jim, um, James Bassett, who uh, Bassett, who um, you know, was you know, he was in Song of the South as Uncle Remus. Mm-hmm. He, 
was he was the he is the first African American to receive an Oscar, but that was an honorary Oscar that Walt really campaigned for and got a lot of people in the film industry to rally behind him because they all agreed he deserved an Oscar. But you're right, Hattie McDaniel, that was the first, she was the winner of the first African-American to win a competitive Oscar. Yeah. And um, so both definitely groundbreaking, you know, actors. So anyway, that was a good one. So, well, I wanted to remind folks about the Diz event. I, I think I said something incorrect last week, so I'm going to run through through it all again. This, of course, is um, from August 4th through the 6th, and it is the Diz and Dreams Unlimited Travel. We are renting out a whole section of Disney California Adventure, Pixar Pier, and well, now it's called it's called Paradise Gardens, but in the information that John has, it's called Pixar Gardens. So I don't know if he got a um. Like I said somebody told well, him, "Hey, we're going to change it." <laughs> I was going to say they've named everything else by Pixar. I know. From I Mickey's know. One Fun Wheel of Death is now the Pixar Paul Around. Mm-hmm. You can't make a pal around a fun wheel of death. I'm sorry. Uh, I know. <laughs> the pal around of death. So, anyway, so be on, on August 4th, you at 8.30, we will all be escorted to Pixar Gardens. And if you're already in the park at that time, you'll you'll be told what to do and all that. But uh, there's 9 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. There's a private reception there. There will be food, beverages, and exciting guests. And, and I, I still think, like I mentioned in Mary Jo last week, John always gets characters to show up at these events. I'm wondering if we're going to see some characters from Pixar there for some fun. I would imagine that if anybody shows up, it'll be Pixar characters. I would think so. But you never know. We never know who you might get. So, And then from 11.30 to 1 a.m., it's the private Pixar Pier Party just for us. And you can ride all the attractions on the uh, on, in um, Pixar Pier there, including the Accreditcoaster, Toy Story Midway Mania, which is probably my favorite one there, Pixar Pal Around that you were talking about, Nancy, that used to be called Mickey's Fun Wheel. And, Death. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I've I, like I've mentioned before, I have never ridden in the swinging cages, and I I said I was going to in this sense. I have oh. to have the right people to go with me. <laughs> oh, did you? Oh, so you're gonna like drag? Craig is really fun to drag on these things, you know. Mm-hmm. You I when. When the uh, kids only uh, Velociraptor ride or whatever. Um, Pterodactyl ride, I guess, opened up at uh, at the Universal Orlando. I actually made him ride on it. I I allowed him to ride on it with my daughter instead of myself because they're allowed one parent, but the ride's designed for kids under a certain age. And Craig's like, I'll never be able to go. Now that he has Rory, he can go on his own eventually. But but he got to he got, it was the first time he got to ride in a, a kid's ride as the adult <laughs> companion. Uh-huh. <laughs> Has many years of that ahead of him. So Craig is fun to take along on rides. So yeah. you should try it with Craig at the party. I, if he's available, I will ask him. 
Um, also, you can ride the Inside Out Emotional Whirlwind, Jesse's Critter Carousel, and Silly Symphony Swings, another one I've not been on it. Maybe I will do also. Well, they just apparently you. rehabbed it, the Silly Symphony Swings. Yeah. And they just rehabbed Emotional Whirlwind as well. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the last time I was in the park um, for DVC uh, member night, um, they added all all the walls up. <laughs> Yeah. And then, of course, the games of the Bardwalk will be open. You will be able to play them. Won't get any, uh, won't win any prizes, but you'll know how you can practice for when you're there in the park when they are giving prizes and, and win them all. So tickets are already on sale. So they're $125. Just go to the Diz boards, go to the Diz Unplugged podcast page. There's instructions for how to purchase them. We also, Dreams Unlimited Travel has reserved a block of rooms at Disney's Grand California Hotel and Spa. And at the Disneyland Hotel, it's a pretty decent rates. They, um, I think I said last week, if you book through them, you get a free ticket. It was actually, if you, if you're on the Adventures by Disney, um, backstage magic, uh, tour that's right before this that's hosted by dreams it's a special one for dreams unlimited travel um you get tickets for that free but um it was if you had booked the hotel you got you were you were able to buy tickets in advance but now that the uh, tickets are on sale you know at least you can get a good night you know good decent price at one of the fancy hotels there i'll be staying at the grand I was going to say you were lucky enough to get a room at the villas because I, was. I wasn't. I'm the on. Minute, I'm waitlisted. The minute I heard they were planning an event, I I saw that they have an ABD running at the, at the, you know in in the summer. I said I bet it's going to be right after the ABD. So I immediately booked the villa, and I ended up being right. I'm still on the wait list. I have one night for Sunday. <laughs> Sunday. Yeah, I, I didn't figure they would do the party on a Friday night, but obviously it makes more sense since the ABD ends that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, anyways, I hope to see you there. Be sure you come up and say hello um, if you are at the event. I'm sure we'll talk about it afterwards on the show. So uh, Nancy, you mentioned you'd been at the a DVC member night at Disneyland. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, that was really actually fairly nice. Um, it was very different from ones I had attended previously. Um, we were given um, basically food voucher tickets. It was during the period of time when the um, when the uh, Chinese the the New Year festivals were all had so you could use the tickets the coupons at food booths or you could use them wherever mm-hmm. um my biggest piece of advice if you ever go to one of those um moonlight magic events is get your food first because if the lines will get incredibly long and you'll like all of a sudden find like the food stalls all closing and you're you're leaving with tickets in your hand basically mm-hmm. free money because each ticket was worth ten dollars oh that's quite a bit so it was like thirty dollars worth of food was it at disneyland or disney california adventure? it was a california adventure so it was basically it was the whole park um it, but 
my kids wanted to do and cry coaster a whole bunch, so they they kind of spent more time over there. Whereas I went to Avengers Camp, Avengers Campus, and hung out a little bit. But um, but yeah, it was it was actually really really nice. You know, they chased everybody out of the park at eight and started the event and went from eight to eleven. Okay, so that did was that any, was nice. Do they have any special? meet and greet characters or anything mm, i've never been to a was, dvc park event before dvc parks usually have i never really ever usually do the characters just because but um I, yeah they had characters all over the place um they even had spider-man up and running oh cool so it was fun to be able to ride web slingers with no lines, um, which is probably one of my favorite rides in that park, in any of the, those it's couple a, parks. It's a terrific ride! I had very low expectations, but when I first read wrote it, it was um, I was very impressed with it. And I hear they're talking about changing up some of the scenes and all that, you know, as time goes on. So to update. Well, yeah. it, films you know upcoming films and stuff so well, yeah depending on when their fights with sony on on the rights to spider-man you know who knows but uh, I, it occurred to me that last time that that ride is actually really toy story midway mania in spider-man form it is that's why i had such low expectations of it because i thought how many more of these do we need between buzz lightyear and uh you know then another shooting ride is uh you know, is like you said, Toy Story Midway Mania, but this one is so unique. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Really like yeah. it. Yeah. And then the funny thing was I, I was, you know, they put me in I was in as a single rider in with another group of people. And then we were doing it, you know, going through the ride. And at the end, they recognized my voice when I told I said something to them I think about. I enjoyed riding with you. So we had talked during the attract during the attraction too. And um then they said you're connecting with Walt. <laughs> so, they, they That's realize. always fun when you get noticed by your voice. You get yeah, recognized I by your voice. Yeah. Well, it was so funny. Um, the first time that ever happened to me was at D23 one time, and Tony and I were in line for to go into the archives, and the couple right in front of us turned around and recognized me, but didn't. And Tony made a little potty face. <laughs> Because oh, like, oh, you were in a lot of videos, too. For yeah. Me, so. Well, I did a lot of little like reporting segments too before Tom took over. Yeah. I I did like the holidays and ate tamales and pet reindeer. And well, I'm so glad that. you could join us for connecting with Wallops. I hope you'll mm-hmm. come back again. Sure, I would be, would be thrilled. So, I have to find you. something fun. Yeah, thank you. This was very fun. It was an honor. It really was. Well, I used several books and articles in researching this episode, including the book, Pinocchio, The Making of the Disney Epic by J.B. Kaufman. Uh, also, the Walt Disney Family Museum has a wonderful display on Pinocchio with, with recordings of some of the people who worked on it talking about their experience on the film. The real Pinocchio and the Disney Pinocchio on Storynori.com. Walt Disney's 1940 classic Pinocchio by the Daily Mail. The real story of Pinocchio tells no lies by Smithsonian Magazine. Walt Disney's Pinocchio by Charles Silver. The twisted history of Pinocchio on screen by Cindy White. 
The History of Animation Pinocchio by CVD History and Museums. The Impact of Jiminy Cricket on the Walt Disney Company by the Disney Classics website. Pinocchio Imperiled by Termite by the Disney Dream Makers. The original Pinocchio was Too Evil for Disney by Carl Seaver. How Pinocchio Set the Standard for Feature Animation by Genevieve Kosky. And the Untold Truth of Pinocchio by Sarah Buttery. So, Nancy, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Well, I'm on Facebook with Nancy L. Johnson um, at nanoescapes.com. You can always reach me through there. And I don't have this email anymore. So there we go. Not, not anymore for that. But um, Instagram, nanoscapes, nano-scapes. Why don't you tell us a little about Nanoscapes? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, my husband and I started a business where we do 3D print landscapes, and we specialize in basically reliving your memories through images of the parks. Um, we Well, we have parks, resorts, Los Angeles landmarks. Um, they're really, really nice, very high detail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maps, aerial maps taken from real, honest gosh, aerial photography yeah, of the, of the parks. Yeah. Yes, they're, they're really fun, really detailed. Our website is actually N-A-N-O dot, or I'm sorry, dash, nano dash, S-C-A-P-E-S dot com. And you can find all of our, our different images and mm-hmm. We we have all sorts of ways to get them to hang up the lovely you know memory of your park, your resort. We specially cater to DVC members because I'm I want to get all the resorts in our collection, and so oh, when people amazing. order them, we add a new resort. So yeah, we have a Grand California and a Polynesian and a Boardwalk already created. So very very fun they they look even more interesting the closer you get to them and when you turn on their sides the photos don't really do them justice if you ever have an opportunity to see them in person you'll be very impressed with them Ah, they're a lot of fun too thank you michael you're welcome so, My husband's a genius. <laughs> he, he, I agree. I've met him several times, he's, and he's very nice, too. So, Well, you can connect with me by sending me messages at michaelbowling at disneyinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, michaelbowling-connectingwithwalt. Instagram, michaelbowlingthediz. And you can, can connect with me, Craig and Nancy, on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disneyplug.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.